Hello, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Ariel Frame. And I'm your co-host, Gavin Talamedi. And we're here today with Yusuf Hassan from the Philosophy Department. Well, thank you for having me. Excellent. So uh, we had a good little pre-chat about your work, and it was really interesting. So why don't you just go ahead, dive right in, tell us just overview, picture, what is your work on? Sure. Uh, well, let me say a few words about how I got interested in philosophy to begin with. I actually began my degree in undergrad studies in Montreal in mathematics. And it was actually in my third year that I first took my philosophy course. And afterwards, I liked it so much because we could ask these really cool questions that I was always interested in, but never had that opportunity. So I eventually did my major in philosophy and a minor in mathematics. And then I came here at Western to do my master's. And now I'm with all, all of you here talking about my dissertation and a bit of philosophy with all of you. Um, shall I say a few words about what my dissertation broadly is about? Yes, yeah, please, please do. Well, I think it's uh, roughly put uh, concerning, it concerns the 20th century history and philosophy of science and mathematics. Now, I'm engaged with philosophers who were also, um, I think, scientifically minded philosophers. They were often logicians, mathematicians, and physicists. Um, and I'm interested in the nature of scientific theories as discussed by some of these great intellectuals um, about the nature of scientific theories, yes. And mm. when you mean the nature of scientific theories, it's just like how they came about, how they developed, and maybe how they were changed, rejected, or were brought back up after some more initial thoughts? Exactly. They concern methodological or these sort of foundational questions that arise within the scientific community, the community of mathematicians and logicians who work together as well. So some questions that we are engaged in, uh, in, a, in a broadly speaking, I think, would be um, questions about, well, given that there is a graveyard of falsified theories, there's a whole list of false theories that, were once, that we once thought were our best scientific theories. Well, given that is the case, what can we say about our current best scientific theories. Mm. So uh, some philosophers may have a pessimistic attitude towards that and think, well, perhaps scientific theories don't aim at truth in the way we think that they do, but somehow are good for their instrumental values in giving us predictions in an accurate way. But that need not warrant that they're also true given the ever-expanding graveyard. Uh, and of course, a response to that could be relying on our, on our intuition. And I think we discussed about this before as well, that um, there, there are no miracles in science. So if you want to explain the remarkable, the stupendous success of scientific theories, perhaps we ought to think of them as latching on to the world in a way of being approximately true mm -hmm. and not be so pessimistic uh, so those are, well, that's an example of a kind of methodological question that sheds light on the nature of scientific theories. You know, I like I like that you said approximately true. Uh -huh. That's a good, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's an op operative word well, there. We don't want to overcommit ourselves, but I must hasten to say that even if we were to uh, accept some parts of the pessimistic uh, induction from the graveyard of th scientific falsified theories, perhaps we should still... Uh, 
be cognizant that the best game in town, insofar as providing descriptions of the world is concerned, is science. So uh, we shouldn't go all, all the way to a kind of skepticism where we don't have trust in science. I'm quite interesting with some of the philosophical skepticism right. towards science. Like, yes, science does have, as you said, a graveyard of theories that have been proven wrong or haven't been able to get much results to prove they're even remotely right. But if there were a lot of, th if theories in science were mainly right, like we had more right than wrong theories, understanding the world would not be as challenging and everything probably would not be as complex as we view or even think about the world. I, I think you're quite right. I think um, even when we discard or overthrow some theories, I don't know, from Newtonian mechanics to Einsteinian mechanics, where we adopt a different kind of geometry to begin with, um, there may be structural retentions from these theory changes that might give us uh, the justification for thinking or believing that we are approximately uh, approximating truth in in our way of describing the world as we observe. You know, uh, you also mentioned uh, methodology before, and uh, and it occurs to me that. I mean, we call we're just kind of lumping all science theories together right. as as the same, but but the methodology is different, and and how much you know evidence there is uh, for a theory uh, varies. Before you know, yeah, yeah, the science there may be a consensus that oh, this is this is our best theory about some some phenomenon, um, and another another phenomenon has another theory behind it, and they may have varying amounts of evidence, and I. I, I have to, I'd, I'd like to think that it's the ones that didn't have too much evidence to begin with that are that are predominantly in the graveyard. And the ones that have a lot of evidence uh, probably are avoiding the graveyard uh, fairly well. <laughs> uh, that's usually the case, but there there have been instances in our history of science that sh are basically shocking in the sense that we, we we are sometimes so certain about some theories that are dear to our hearts perhaps because of some presuppositions that we might have in that historical time, uh, and that we are shocked to learn, and uh, especially when scientific revolutions happen, mm. where there, there is an appearance of a kind of paradigm shift, so much so that we think that maybe that two paradigms from one era to the other may be incommensurable, although that might be a, a, a bit uh, too strong of an inference, perhaps, but still it gives us... Um, a good understanding as to how these radical shifts do actually happen that may be rare, but they too become part of the ever-expanding <laughs> graveyard. I'm not sure why I'm using the metaphor of graveyard, but I think it does give us a nice picture of very various theories that are put to dust. Um, maybe uh, maybe can you give us a, uh, an example of um, any hi historical philosophers that have... Uh, have spoken about this before, or maybe any particular theories that are in the graveyard that are very notable? Well, um, interestingly, I mean, I know right now we are quite confident about uh, our fundamental constituents of the world being atoms. Um, but early in the 20th century, we, b before Einstein and Perrin actually expanded our um, works on Brownian motion to really give us the kind of confidence we have when it comes to thinking that atoms really are real and we can do away with the energeticism th alternative theory. Um, well, 
prior their works, actually, we, we thought that these kind of different alternative theories were, um, were, were equally good and that philosophers of science or, uh, or scientists themselves had equally good arguments for these competing theories until one of them seems to be a part of the graveyard, name, namely energeticism. But at, at those time, at that time at least, people were very confident. Sometimes, went to the to their deathbed, believing in an energeticism as being a better viable theory. But uh, lo and behold, that's not the case. We think. So, so what were the ramifications in science uh, in general? Like, um, it were th- were people even right <laughs> at that point going like, oh c- come on, like energeticism <laughs> was my my thing, and now you're telling me it's not? Uh, how can I believe you know, anything? Was anyone <laughs> whose mind was blown? I, I think it this. took a lot of time, even after there were independent results, to give us the same answer that the scientific community w- in in large began to be more accepting of. Uh, atomic hypothesis in a, in a much more serious way in a, in a sort of um, a decisive manner, yes. <laughs> Were they probably more in denial that they didn't want their theory to be disproven or they were just frustrated that they were struggling to find proof that their theory was the correct theory over well, opposing theory <laughs> well I, I think once we are committed to some theory we become we have a tendency to be a little dogmatic even if we don't want to be mm. and that's something I think the history of science should at least inform us to be a lot more open and uh, have a stronger sense of humility in our approach of doing sci- uh, science so is that is that kind of the take home? Um, is that we need to look at science a little bit differently uh, in light of uh, these paradigm shifting? I, I suspect philosophers of science um, could help scientists themselves who may not be engaged in some of the methodological issues that may arise. But I think there is room for a lot of improvement in how they communicate their uh, works to the scientific community. And I think the kind of difficulty we have as philosophers of science might be similar to the kind of difficulty that scientists may have in trying to educate the public, mm-hmm. given the kind of disinformation we have concerning, say, climate change. And right. I think we can do a better job with that. But I would say there are other some questions as well con- relevant to the nature of scientific theories that arise especially for, I mean, my research involves a physicist and philosopher, Rudolf Carnap from 20th century. Most of his work is from 1930s to uh, 60s or 70s or so. And what's, what's, uh, what got me really interested in his work was his rather um, very interesting approach of doing um, philosophy in a sort of scientific way. So he was skeptical of a lot of traditional debates that philosophers may be engaged in, uh, traditional debates that he thought, his diagnosis, and I think he was correct, often result from our misuse or perhaps abuse of language. Mm -hmm. We might ask these grand questions and think that there is an answer one way or the other, but perhaps upon inspection, a closer inspection, we might realize, as another very influential philosopher said, uh, with Ludwig Wittgenstein, who said, sometimes language goes on a holiday, alluding to these problems that might be pseudo. 
And this got me really interested in philosophy, but from this somewhat scientific approach of being suspicious of language and suspicious of a lot of questions that people might pose. Let me give you an example. We might, for example, ask, um, do numbers exist? And someone like Carnap would say, well, if you're doing arithmetic, of course they exist. If you're uh, do complex numbers exist? Well, if you augment your language to include the rules of complex numbers and talk about them, well, of course, they exist just as natural numbers and so on and so forth for other kinds of entities, say surreal numbers, fractions, reals, and so forth. Sorry, course, we don't. I don't really know what those are, actually. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is a surreal number <laughs> and a complex number? <laughs> I think surreal numbers, if I remember correctly, it's a much less known kind of number, perhaps, it has to do with discourse involving infinities and epsilons or something mm. like that. But I'm not entirely sure. But the idea is that mathematicians should be allowed to uh, involve these entities to find solutions and not have these presuppositions to think, well, we shouldn't go in these paths just because we think we're suspicious that they exist. And someone like Carnap would say, well, there's this perfectly meaningful way in which we can say that the, they exist insofar as we provide these rules that make sense of a system. Hmm. But a philosopher sometimes may ask the deeper question, which is problematic. Namely, do they really exist? <laughs> uh, I mean, independent of the language of arithmetic. Mm. I mean, independent of our conceptualizing of those frameworks or independent of our minds in some way. Are they mind independent? And Carnap would say, look, I don't really know what you mean by that until and unless you can provide me a clear understanding of how one can go about answering it in affirmative or negative. I would withhold judgment and think of this as a suspicious linguistic error, perhaps. And instead, um, I think we can ask this other question, and perhaps going in perhaps too much detail. No, 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 this is great. This yeah. is great. We're following you. Okay. Listeners are following with you. <laughs> Continue on. Um, I'm enjoying it. Uh, uh, which is a practical question. Should we adopt this or that language for certain purposes that science might have to fulfill certain aims of science. Maybe complex numbers are useful, and that's all that there is to the to the second more robust question, and we shouldn't think of it as some sort of grand existence question. That might be misleading. So that, th that's a, a kind of endeavor that's fascinated me uh, quite a bit. How did you... Uh, how, how do you first find out about like where do you go to find out this information do you do they have <laughs> you sit down and someone said you know the first person you got you got to you got to read this guy rudolph that carnap this really is the guy how do you even find out a very interesting question because i was in my undergrad studies and uh, i was doing my first course in philosophy and one of my other tas that i knew said you know what the kinds of questions you're asking um i, I suggest that perhaps you would like this person Rudolf Carnap. I'm like, okay. So the, I, I guess in our in my discussions with my TAs at that time, I I was interested in 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 some of these some grand questions, but there was a question about language itself, and so Rudolf Carnap or Ludwig Wittgenstein were two prominent philosophers who who were had a laser sharp focus on language itself. We don't want it to go astray in the way we ask questions and let us use our tools of logic to guide us from mm. asking these ambiguous questions that go on for a couple of millennia with no answers. Um, and so that sort of shifts the role uh, that philosophy can play in science to some other questions. For example, um, 
the question that interests me, especially as an empiricist. I wonder if you've heard the word empiricism or empiricist before. Um, uh, I, I think it's like something about empirical observation. Why don't you, for you know, yeah, why, not, why why not tell us a little yeah, bit? Sure. What, what is um, empiricism? Well, <laughs> I think typically we think of uh, there having been uh, two school of thoughts in how we think about philosophy, one known as empiricism and the other rationalism. And the basic idea behind empiricism, the movement of empiricism, is to really think of our experience as being playing a supreme role, or at least being um, playing a more important role in cultivating knowledge, in acquiring knowledge, then say the role that our our reason alone could play or our pure intellect. So maybe just by sitting here in my arm sort of chair over here and I might be able to think about things through my pure intellect and have some big ideas. But empiricists think that knowledge typically ultimately stems from our sensations, our experiences. So they sort of value the role experiences play. And um, one of a great philosopher, um, an empiricist, a canonical philosopher, David Hume, actually said that you can see his empiricism sort of being made very explicit. He said, reason is and ought to be the slave of the passions or experiences. And I guess that's what he meant when he when, when he said that um, that experience is somehow more supreme. And so as an empiricist, and most of the philosophers that I'm engaged with in 20th century, say Carnap, Bertrand Russell, Frege, well, Frege is a bit earlier than that, but still, um, were, um, well, at least Bertrand Russell was an empiricist. And there's a difficulty, especially if you think that you acquire knowledge from experience, how then can we explain mathematical knowledge, knowledge such as, well, 2 plus 2 equals 4? I don't go out and put two apples together and then two apples together and say, aha, two plus two equals four. That's not really the, the case. You can learn the truth about these propositions or statements without having to uh, go out in the world. You might just have to know the meaning of two plus equals and four. And maybe this kind of statement is similar in form of some definitions as well, like all bachelors are unmarried men. Well, I don't have to go out in the world and spot a bachelor and say, well, that bachelor is an unmarried man, and so is that bachelor, and so on, and therefore all bachelors are unmarried men. So so there's a, there's a worry here that these sort of statements are not linked with experience in the way other statements are, such as it is raining outside. I pretty much have to go outside or look into my cell phone and look at the weather forecast to know that. So how then can an empiricist explain the worry of mathematical knowledge uh, given that it's not linked with experience in the way we think other statements are? So th that's something also of, of great interest to me. Wow. You know, actually what comes to mind weirdly is uh, our our now dependence more and more on computers and algorithms and programs, where I mean people are making um, you know artificial intelligence programs for lack of a better word um, that uh, they say it does something the output we like 
um, and then if someone asks, how did you, how did it do it? Oh, we don't know. I mean, it's, uh, it's just learning on its own. We don't really know the processes <laughs> involved in how we got to the answer. We could not tell you uh, the mechanism, um, but it works. Just trust. <laughs> um, and that kind of makes me think, how does an empiricist look at that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we could not, we could not really observe the inner workings of that. We uh, of the of the could you repeat of the one? artificial artificial intelligence that we're now programming. We can't, we can't, um, we can't. No person can read all the code because um, there's just too much for any one person to even read. Th that's right. I, I suppose the 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 worry is also probably shared with our everyday scientists nowadays. They're, they're, without them perhaps knowing at times, they are also um, embedded in an empiricist framework. I mean, back a, f a few centuries back, that wasn't the case. Uh, but now we, we are just by default an empiricist in how we work. Say, for example, scientists mm -hmm. uh, don't th are all about, you know, engaging in the world, making observations, making predictions, theorizing about it. And even though some things might be very theoretical and uh, sort of interlinked with mathematics, still it's all down to testability, verification, and so forth, or, or falsification. Um, so, so scientists, at least now, are, um, are by default, I think, <laughs> empiricists. And there, there are some worries as well. But I suppose they're not so aware of the presuppositions that they are involved with while doing um, while engaging in science. Wow, I mean that's a that's a quite a deep thought. I can see where I can I think I think I can understand now how you started in math and then resulted here. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is uh, it is a kind of a crazy crazy idea to think. Well, it's been quite a bit of a journey. Um, I believe I was also deeply influenced. Um, by Hume, by David Hume, um, I think he he said something in his inquiry. Uh, by all means, do philosophy, but amidst all your philosophy, be still a human. And I think, although he may be talking about how we might s stay away from absolute truths or something, but I suspect, at least the way I also took inspiration from that quote was. Perhaps it's important for us to be uh, respectful in our discourse, but when we engage with others, we're all, you know, um, members of a society, and it's I think great philosophical progress comes from good engagement, respectful engagement, and that's a sort of side influence for me. I think. Do you think that type of um, thought process probably is needed more? I guess more often in the scientific community. Uh, I I think so. I think so. I mean, y philosophers have their own difficulties, uh, but uh, and even philosophers of science as well. But sometimes I think we the worry is to become a little dogmatic in our approach, without being. Um, and if we were much more aware of our history and the kind of discussions that are we are engaging in methodology, I suspect we humility would be natural, but that that's something lacking at present. So how is uh so you're at uh, Rotman Rotman Institute of Philosophy here at Western, right? Yes. Uh, how how do you feel uh, in, on that front? Uh, oh, they're they're doing in the in Rotman. It's absolutely wonderful because we in 
I get to speak with people who are doing uh, physics or applied math or chemistry even, and uh, there is so much to learn from each other. And uh, some of our talks are quite accessible for all of us. And we ask questions. We learn to communicate what we, we've we've been studying as well more effectively, and more making it more accessible as well. And there's just just exactly the kind of thing we need is more of Rotman type institutes where people can get together uh, and talk about neuroscience about. Um, ethics within science as well, and s- medical ethics and whatnot. I think that's wonderful. So you're uh, um, you're almost finished your program, right? I hope so. <laughs> so uh, what uh, do you have any plans next? What's what's ah, next for Yusuf? Well, that's that's a great question. I I don't quite know. I mean, wherever I can go with whatever I've learned, I'll be very happy. I'm especially interested in teaching, but I'm very much open to other activities that involve engaging with people. Lately I've involved, uh, I've really enjoyed volunteer work um, and working with my own community in philosophy as in various capacities, working in K-12 programs as well. And that kind of thing provides me great joy. So I hope I can uh, pursue some of those uh, similar kinds of uh, works in future after this. Well, uh, on that note, uh, if people want to, you know, find out more about about you and uh, maybe ask you more about your experience here and what you're going to be doing with uh, K-12 to or whatnot, uh, how, how can they get a hold of you? I suspect uh, going to the Rotman website, Rotman UWO, I can, I'm sure you can find it, and finding me under members. You'll have my contact information over there, and I'd be happy to engage with you via email. Thank you. Perfect. Yeah, so we'll put a a link in the synopsis. Everyone can find it there on uh, gradcast.ca. That's about the time that we have today. Uh, Thanks again for coming on the show. Uh, This has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Ariel Frame, and my co-host today was Gavin Tolometti. We've been speaking with Yusuf Hassan, and this episode was produced by Nick Hanfield-Jones. If you would like to get involved with the show, get in contact with us, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, at Gradcast Radio. Uh, we're getting pretty involved on social media, so follow us there. Uh, to listen to us uh, every week, we're on CHRW 94.9, um, Tuesday, 6 p.m., and every other Thursday at 1.30 p.m. Um, we're also available uh, on our website, gradcast.ca. Uh, everything, all our archived episodes um, can be streamed there, but also if you're like everyone else listening i think most people are listening on podcasts nowadays and we're available anywhere you want to get uh podcasts that's podbean itunes spotify google play um you know that's a a few episodes we've actually uploaded to youtube as well you can find us there on gradcast radio so thanks everybody for listening uh have a great night